Funding for Sundays on the East End comes from CP Complete Construction and Renovation, specializing in interior and exterior living spaces. CP Complete focuses on the end result throughout the entire process. Individualized attention sets their boutique construction company apart with a focused, inclusive, innovative, and personalized process from start to finish. CP Complete builds what you have imagined. Learn more at cpcomplete.com or 631-727-5741. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. We have a very interesting guest today, Sag Harbor's own Ken Dorf. And uh, we'll be bringing him on shortly. Ken is, uh, I guess, an expert on all things of Arab culture and spent a great deal of his time there and is also a... A, a person of note in international finance. Right, so, like, uh, involved with the World Bank, right? And yeah. That's, uh, and I've always wanted, but does the World Bank have an ATM machine? <laughs> I don't know. Because you can ask when he comes on, okay? Let's not, let's, you are such a funny guy. Um, really, you just make me laugh constantly. I'm always laughing when I'm with you, Sock. Anyway, uh, but, but, you know, we were talking about, um, about Ken and about Arab culture and about culture in general. And, and Sock, you brought up something really interesting, which is the whole idea of myths and perceptions and, and oh, the parts that they play in our in our life. Absolutely. I think that maybe it's the way our brains kind of order things. But um, we, uh, in the West, uh, whether it's due to movies or television or, or books or uh, publishing, whatever, we were fed a narrative on so many different levels uh, that then becomes accepted truth perception being reality. Well, and, I, don't want to hold, I don't want to hold your feet to the fire, but let's say, like, for example, you co-wrote Toy Story. I did? And, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. I did, okay, and, yeah. And so you've got Woody the cowboy. Right, right. poison the water hole, and you have the astronaut. There's a you know, snake the, in my boots. Right, and right, you've got yeah. the, the spaceman to infinity. Right, and, and two archetypes, two American archetypes, and, and again, uh, you can look at cowboys and spacemen and say they're American heroes, or you can look at cowboys and spacemen and say, really, for an audience, um, it, it makes it much easier to tell a story because you think that's how a cowboy talks, or you think that's how a spaceman's supposed to talk. But, but I would say, and when we were talking before, you know, I'm a, I'm a kid from New York City who went out to Los Angeles and spent, you know, 30 years working in the entertainment industry. And Congratulations. Oh, golly. I got paroled. <laughs> uh, but but the, um, one of the great misperceptions that I've dealt with is before I went as a kid I think I thought it was one thing and I st constantly hear people say it's one thing it's it's everybody's you know tan buff happy money it's like the, the image it's, that Woody Allen painted in Annie Hall right right and 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 then when you get there and you're actually on the inside looking out first of all you realize it's not a cavernous industry it's a very small industry um, everybody knows each other everybody knows each other's business but also people work 12 14 15 hours a day that you'll never hear about that hold the industry together and that it really is a marketplace. Kind of like our Kyle right here. Kind Kyle like Lynch Kyle, is our, our sound operator. Um, but, but, so, so I say that because perception and reality. You know, the perception is when you watch the award shows that uh, everybody knows each other and loves each other. Everybody's beautiful. Everybody's hugging each other. The reality is not that everybody hates each other, but that it's very competitive and right. people are isolated on their own island trying their best to to keep something going. Well, let's let's bring that back here, right here to the Hamptons. Mm -hmm. I mean, the when the Hamptons are portrayed on TV or in, in the movies, it's either, you know, 
Well, I mean, it really is a very, very wealthy, wealthy place. And it's certainly there are people here who have no concerns about money. But there's, I would say that, and then there's people who are like the, the noble ones. Miserable the people in big no, no, houses. No, no, no. The noble fishermen, the baymen, the, the potato farmers who are what? being are, are, pushed are, off the land. Wait a minute. But then in the middle are is this supposed people who like can still afford the $2 million houses and drive Mercedes and stuff. And what I see when I see those people isn't what I want to be. I see people carrying a lot of debt to look a certain way. Right. So again, it's about perception. Right. Okay, and, now I'm done. All right. But, and, but I just want to go back to why are fishermen noble? Well, because they're because of Billy because Billy Joel said so. All right, no. I'm just saying no, like that's that's are. a wonderful adjective. That's the only uh, type of person you described that had an adjective. Well, I think it has to do with people who have been doing something in this area for a very long time. Bonikers. Yeah, but the Baymen were were the original families yeah. out here no, in I'm 1686. Not, I'm not dogging the them, but noble, nobles, but noble is a very interesting Don't word. Don't mess with my East Hampton history. Noble is a very boy. interesting word because you're already propelling a myth about. In, in the concepts of this. Uh, so again, that's, right. th that's what I'm going for is like, we're actually talking and, and I think we're really blessed today to have Ken on uh, because probably in the Western world, there's no greater mystery than what it's than what life is like for people in the Near East. In the in is that the, what the, it's called? Kind of the Near East. It's not the Far East. It's the Middle East. It's the Middle East. It's the Middle East. It's not near. It's but, not far. It's in the middle. But it's and and God knows with with the uh, America's last 20, 25 years, all we know is what we're fed through the war machine, uh, you know, both good and or bad. the Hollywood machine. Right, which propels that and everything. And so, uh, in a way, like, I, I think this is a fascinating conversation to have about perception and reality. And then also, you talk about debt out here, obviously, in the entertainment industry, this debt, 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 debt money runs the world in some way and debt runs the world and even what that means for for anybody or for any um uh opportunity in a, any part of the world so right. the world bank which you know ken has been involved with uh is, is i would like to talk about the world bank uh, i i'm fascinated by right. what the world bank actually does and and help people how it, how and how it helps, helps yes yeah, so. you're talking about macro finance compared to micro finance which is because the micro the micro credit is such like a huge thing in in africa like the you know to kind of like help people get on their own feet and then you have kind of the macro credit kind of coming in and and you know is that right that, that always does, does that just positive? does it's that just propel the ruling class and does that just keep people in the same rut where they just have their hand out versus the organic thing that I think everybody has, which is to be self-determined. Well, let's just, but I mean, you can look no further again than, than the Hamptons, where, again, I can't stress this enough. If you are jealous of someone who's driving a new Mercedes and just bought a house, it doesn't mean they have money. It means they owe money. It means the bank owns their house and yeah. the bank owns their car. And they probably just as much because I know because I was there. I used to be rich. Not anymore. But, you know, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and thinking, oh, like, holy shit, how am I going to come up with $67,000 this month to pay my taxes, the taxes on my on my business, my car payments, my my kids tuition? I mean, I had a $67,000 a month not that I could not that I, I met. But it was very, very, very difficult. 
and there were a lot of things that had to fall by the wayside. The because American of that. dream. Yeah, well, that's the American, the American debt. But anyway, so this is Bridget Leroy and Alex Sokolow, and we're uh, on. You're listening to Sundays on the East End here on WPPB, Long Island's only NPR station, and you can also stream us online at 88.3 WPPB.org or BeconicPublicBroadcasting.org. You can also donate there if you want to continue to hear shows like this. And we're going to be back in a minute with our guest, Sag Harbor's Ken Dorf. Thank you. Oh, hey, everybody. Uh, this is Alex Sokolow. Uh, and Bridget Leroy. We're uh, coming to you uh, Sundays on the East End um, with our very uh, special guest today, Ken Dorf, um, who I'm going to let Bridget introduce uh, because I, 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 I think like a dog. So I hear like Well, there, there's no, there's no one way to describe Ken because yeah. he, um, I, I mean, just this weekend, I mean, this is the weekend of uh, October 20th, 2018. We don't know when this will, you might be listening to this at some point in the future in the uh, SD card that's been implanted in your brain. But if you are, it's October 20th, 2018, and Ken is uh, responsible for bringing out the Obama Scholars this weekend, which is a bunch of, I, I originally thought it was going to be like students, but it's these people who run these kind of um, amazing programs around the world. Some are, some are health-related, and they all have to do with community and connectivity, and that's really what we're talking about today anyway with Ken. But Ken is also a, a high mucky-muck, or has been in, in the world of finance and with the World Bank, and also um, deals mostly with, with the um, Arab nations and has spent time living in, in, uh, in the nations and also has brought back here to the East End, um, a Ramadan and other interfaith, um, you know, celebrations in order to kind of bring people together and and to get over that myth and perception. Right. So, of so the it's Arab awesome. Is we're talking about again, myth of perception. We're talking about connectivity, what unites us, and we're also talking in the case of the World Bank of of uh, how to use the tools that that are in this world to try and better people's lives. Exactly. So welcome, Ken. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you on. very much. And Bridget, so great that you could, and really pleased you could invite me here. And Alec, nice to meet you. Very nice meeting you. Glad to be here. Thank yeah. you so much. Um, so I, I, I know that Alec had said this before, so maybe you want to take this, but the, you know, the first thing is about Ken's journey. Yeah. So, you know, when, when I was doing uh, what passes for research, uh, a Google search, um, I, I read that, you know, you're a kid from New York City uh, who uh, use the Peace Corps, I guess, at a certain point to, to reach out to the world and to change your life. So if you don't mind, by way of introduction, maybe talk about your journey of, of how you um, found yourself interested in the things that you've spent your, your life's passion on. Sure. I think actually it starts with having grown up in New York City. And I was one of the bridge and tunnel people. I'm from Brooklyn and Staten Island. I think, you know, one of the formative periods of my life is I grew up until 10 in a completely Jewish neighborhood. It was a shtetl. It was sort of like Lithuania, Lower East Side, East New York, Brooklyn. I was actually a Shabboskoy, so I'd like to... That's <laughs> awesome. That, you know, turn off the lights. Yeah. <laughs> turn on the lights. Isn't that wonderful, by the way? Again, like Bridget and I are both Jewish. It's wonderful. Like, you have this, this concept that, like, my hands are clean. <laughs> I didn't do it. Well, you know, it was funny because it was my first... Con- 
concept of religion. I remember one time, because the Orthodox tend to live on the low. Most, yeah. of the, most of our neighbors were very secular leftist Jews, like my, like my parents, actually very similar. You know? yeah. And it was extremely close community. People went out of those doors. But the Orthodox tend to live on the lower floors because of the elevator, obviously. Yeah. Wow. And one day, I remember asking my mom, I don't get it. I turn it on, and they can use it. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And, and my mother said, people believe different things. And she said it in a way to say, like, I get what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but that is the world. And right. it, it, she was an incredibly open-minded person, you know, very one of the least racist people I've never ever met. And, and I think that period of living there among the Jews, you know, and, and, and I felt very Jewish, but I was not because I was obviously a goy. Then we moved to Staten Island, which is like Italian and Irish. Right. And, and I was funny because we thought we were Christian. And then we realized when we got there that we were not Christian <laughs> at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because right? yeah, yeah. I was raised Unitarian. We used to go to the Brooklyn Heights. Oh, that's awesome. So, and I was so Jewish that I had that style. Right. So it was like. Right. So, so that kind of cultural, uh, trying to balance between the two cultures got me started thinking very young age about what is culture? Who, where do people come from? And you well, New, and New York is you know oh, obviously the the, the the place where the everybody, everybody's pot. everybody's everything. Exactly. You know, right. and and one of the things about New York again, you talk about perception. Having been born and raised in the city, uh, I was always and and continue to be like stunned when people would talk about New York as if well you're going to get mugged and people are going to curse you out and people do it. And for me, the people who are of New York and from New York. They understand we all have to live together and work together and be together. And I actually think people are very me more mellow than Los Angeles, in I, my own I, I, experience. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a major New York. I think of New York as this great human experiment that mm. basically works. And in fact, someone a, a few months ago, I was working with folks in the World Bank in the Middle East, and someone pointed out to me, when I'm asked where I'm from, and I wasn't conscious of this, I always say New York. I never say the United States. There you go. You know, and there is, I'm obviously being where I work and what I do, ambivalent about defining myself as an American, but I'm really proud of being a New Yorker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I'm, I'm Well, America, so. that's the thing, but that brings us, I mean, we're going to go on your journey, but that's the whole thing about the Middle East is people kind of lump it into one thing, as people do when I've been in, in like Bali and stuff, and they just assume that so, America so, is America, and America isn't just right. America. So, so, so you're growing up there, and how did you reach for that part of the world? Well, what what happened was I was actually pre med. I was planning to be a doctor. I looked around and realized I didn't like my fellow. And medical. you're not Jewish, so that exactly. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So what was it the just point? Just wouldn't have worked out for you, Ken. <laughs> for the Irish, it's a lower bar. My, my, my mother said none of my sons are drunk. They don't beat their wives, and none are in jail. I did a good job. <laughs> Actually, it's a pretty, pretty low bar. Exactly. There. It's a much easier bar. <laughs> so, That's awesome. So, yeah. so, okay. so anyway, so I I, I decided I had this fabulous teacher and uh, an anthropology teacher who taught about the Uled Boali of Egypt, and I just so I switched to anthropology, nice. which was actually a very very and plus I was raised Unitarian, which I think helped a lot having that worldview of similarity and differences, but on the deep structure of humans being really v basically the same. Mm. And I, I, I got a, uh, I went into an uh, overseas studies program that was actually cheaper than staying home in those days in Malta, <laughs> Morocco, and Venice. Oh, I wow. went for Venice, fell in love with Morocco. Oh, I yeah. absolutely fell in love with Morocco. I, I, it was a stunningly interesting place. So that got me, I decided I wanted to go back to the Arab world. It also, I learned, because I was a science geek, that I was gifted in languages, which is something you don't know until you're on the ground. But I right, found that right. for whatever reason, and I have theories about this, I picked up languages very quickly. So I, I began to learn French, and then I decided to join the Peace Corps, and I actually applied for Morocco, because I loved it so much, but they sent me to Tunisia, which turned out to be quite lucky, because their Arabic is closer to standard Arabic. So I spent two years there on a little island near Libya, off the coast of Tunisia. And, and what were you what doing? We, yeah, what I was, was teaching here? English, and I'm very proud. My students, we had them two years, their first graduating class, had the second highest scores in English in the Republic of Tunisia. Wow. Which was um, one of the great, great successes of my life. I, I told you, my son has uh, just got okayed yesterday to go for, to Ghana for two years with the Peace Corps. We, we, he, very he and I have to talk. I absolutely. 
Absolutely. It, He'll it be back in December. It's life-changing. It's yeah. less what you do for them, but what they do for you. Well, but, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it was actually, it's funny, it was, it was a maritime, it was an island fishing community, and I remember thinking, small town, by the sea, someday I hope to live in somewhere like that. <laughs> I'm in Sag Harbor. <laughs> how'd, you find, how'd, you, how'd you find Sag Harbor? Let's just jump in my, there. Actually, my spouse, he, he works for the Nature Conservancy. Okay. And we were in Manhattan, and he got this job out here, and I was like, uh, what was it, Ava Gabor, give me Park Avenue. I yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, what are you, nuts? And and then Goodbye, we were out here in Springs, which was not didn't work for me, and I discovered Sag Harbor. And yeah, thought, okay, I could live magical. here. And now yeah. I'm just c- totally convinced. Anyway, so that was, I, I was in the Peace Corps. I got very fluent in Tunisian Arabic um, and really fell in love with that part of the world. It was an incredible experience. My students, my colleagues, then decided I wanted to go on in Middle East studies. Started in, in Michigan, which is the premier school for Arabic did standard Arabic, got very serious about it, was going on a PhD, realized I was not an academic, I'm way too extroverted. Then I decided to go to business school because I want to make some money. I'm not from a family with money. I went to Wharton, same business school. Hey, I, I, I went to Penn undergrad. Oh, you did? Yeah, so you so know Wharton. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I actually... Uh, I'm sorry, do you guys want me to leave? No, I... What I actually on. said is I went to Edith Wharton because I studied... <laughs> I studied literature, studied literature and stuff. Which is so useful. But in your case, it was. It was a real thing. It was like the end. It's like, it's like my, hus- exactly. my husband has a degree in, fr- in, in 19th century French literature, and he drives a truck. So there you go. Like, sometimes it doesn't work I, I actually think he you. drives le truck. He drives le truck. He does. <laughs> but anyway, so you, you developed this interest in... In, in the Arab world. And, yeah. and I, uh, I was actually taken then by Citibank. I worked in Cairo. I did investment banking in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and I really got to know the region quite well. Again, quite very fluent in Arabic. On on the phone, people think I'm an Arab. They don't know where I'm from, but I have a, a good accent. And I, and somewhere along the line, I was in that that moving in that investment banking moneyed world. For many reasons, I decided this is not me. I, I just okay. didn't like my colleagues. I didn't like their values. And I shifted towards more of a. Div- I actually worked in consulting for a while with you know Booz Allen, big consulting mm-hmm. firm, and got very involved in looking at total financial sectors. A- actually, outside of the Middle East for about 10 years, I was in Mexico when their financial system collapsed. Yeah. I was the guy uh, holding the bag, w- reviewing the entire Mexican financial sector. When, wow. they, when they, they nationalized their... Didn't they, na- like, in the... It would have been in the early, mid-'80s, or...? No, this was later. In 94, actually, I arrived a w- two months, two weeks before this happened. The peso collapsed, right. and all the Mexicans had taken uh, debt in dollars. Yeah. So talk about debt. Right, right. Uh, so all of a sudden, my secretary, who was paying a third of her income, was paying 200% of her income on... Her, and, and then, so I got very involved. I was in Mexico quite a lot. I was mm. working in Indonesia. Oh, you speak collapse. Spanish fluently. You I speak, speak, Spanish, you speak French, so many languages. Spanish, French, and Arabic, and English are the four languages I work in. But right. I, I also can get by in Indonesian. That's what I mean. I'm a language dude. Right, I love right. languages. It's like a hobby. Okay, all, right, so. okay, all right, and this is at the risk of sounding really stupid, but like when you're working in an investment bank or you're working uh, in, in finance, are you? is it as simple as you're looking at financial opportunities are you looking at at bigger like ec- economic thing like what what's your are expertise you looking at trends well, or are you looking the at er, the earlier job i had smith barney Citibank, was really private sector trying to make money so okay. it was really about making deals i had saudi clients who are now billionaires whatever and that's one job but now then i went got into consulting which is for me i'm more of an intellectual than a guy who wants to own a maserati i don't mm-hmm. it's just not my thing because my parents were kind of leftist, you know. Yeah, no, yeah, both of us too. Yeah, yeah. so Artists. that was really what appealed to me, and and I decided to move. I moved in that direction and got when I was with Booz Allen, we were more hired to look at whole financial sectors, you know, more more higher level stuff, or looking at a financial institution saying, how can we make this better or stronger? When you so say better or stronger, though, do you mean numbers wise, or do you mean impact wise? 
Uh, well, if, if, it's, if you're hired as a commercial client, they are looking for improving the bottom line. But yeah. that could be strategy, risk management. I mean, I, right now I'm working in several. I have both commercial clients. See, World Bank is only one of the things I do. Okay. The commercial clients tend to be for, like I work with Oliver Wyman, which is a big commercial company, and um, helping to make banks do better. And because I speak languages, I tend to be drawn to the countries where, like I'm working in Haiti right now. I'm working in Burkina Faso. Um, and, but a lot of what I do is helping banks improve themselves who are also doing good things like right. a, a small business finance. So, so that's definitely something that draws you to the bank <coughs> is that yes. they're doing good things because well, that's what you do here exactly. in the community uh, on a small, I mean, exactly. on a smaller scale, obviously. Where the World Bank is different. The World Bank is, is the whole, for example, I have several World Bank jobs right now. I'm working in, in Iraq, which is a, a job I'm, I find absolutely fascinating. It's working with what they call the newly liberated areas in Fallujah and Mosul and um, Ramadi, you mm -hmm. know, the areas that were the Sunni yeah. uh, heartland. Mm -hmm. and, the, and after what's happened and all the battles going back and forth, of course, they've been very heavily destroyed. <coughs> so what we're trying to do, it's a great job. We're looking at the GPS of those cities and finding the commercial strips that existed before things fell apart. And, wow. and, they're, and, they're, wow. and, they're, and you can't even find them because of the destruction? Oh, this, I mean, uh, Mosul in the West looks like Warsaw in 1945. And I'm not going to get to politics, but right. it was overdone, the, the destruction of right. Iraq. Uh, yeah. Anyway, in any case, so what we're doing is work with the UN, the World Bank, trying to say, okay, as this is redeveloped, we're finding the individual commercial, the business people, the small businesses saying, hey, Mohammed, you had the, uh, the shop that did the car repair or the restaurant there. Come back and we'll give you an easy loan. We'll give you credit. We'll, we'll try to get you started. That's so it's amazing. trying to have a re, re I don't want to say gentrify, but no, you know, no, to but kind it's, of re it's, it's the reboot. Reboot. Right, create the pulse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's a fast reboot rather than just waiting for it to happen organically. So I just find the job fast. And the Iraqi counterparts, I've actually had three projects in Iraq. The first two were total waste of money. First one was at the Pentagon. And uh, this one, for the first time, it feels like, I really feel like I have counterparts who want to do something. And part of it's the time. These are young people. The American invasion was 15 years ago. Right. And so now this is, there's been a shift. People finally want to roll up their sleeves. They're not just angry. So that's what I'm doing in Iraq, working a project in Yemen, trying to get uh, solar uh, lamps to the population because the Saudi and American bombing has destroyed 90% of the infrastructure. The right. Right, right. And that also, I mean, again, this almost trips into the... the the, the perception or the or the myth of perception, but like, you know, when you're talking about the cities in Iraq, you're talking about Yemen, I certainly, as an American, don't have any cognitive concept of the destruction of normalcy that has been perpetrated in the last 30, 20, 15, 10 years, whatever it is, what, what it's like to live there knowing that there's no there there, you know? Oh, it's hard. I I guess what, one of the things I have come to feel so strongly, and I'm something of a pacifist as I get older, I, I feel, as my mom did, uh, she, was, uh, she was actually one of the first women on the beach in Normandy. She was a nurse. Wow. wow. And, and it really, the war really affected her. That wow. most wars can be prevented. I really, really passionately believe that. If, and, and a lot of the reason that wars happen is because people demonize. You know, once you right, say... Right, well, that's what we want to... We definitely want to <coughs> talk about right. that when we, come, when we come back. We're going to take another little break. But that's one of the most interesting points is that you have chosen, at, at least in the American perception, one of the most war-torn areas of, uh, ever that's been consistently at war for the last 2,500 years, and you're a pacifist. And, and it's just a very interesting... I mean, can you do good in, in little plays? You, you also do good in big ways with, with finances. But we're going to talk about all of that when we come back and just about 
um, the, the idea, American idea of Arab culture and what it's really like. So we're going to be back again. I can't wait to be back. Okay, we'll be back in a minute with Sundays on the East End here on 88.3 WPPB-FM. Okay, so we're back with Sundays on the East End here with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. <laughs> and we're here with our guest, Ken Dorf. And we're talking about uh, perceptions and misperceptions about uh, Arab culture and, and the Middle East. And uh, you, you kind of actually just schooled me because I had said just before the break, a war-torn area that's been at, at war for 2,500 years, and that is the American perception of the Middle East. Which that, is not mine at all. And, and, and when, I, when I actually remember when I was in Morocco and Tunisia and Egypt, they were very peaceful places. And one of the things that's very striking about the Arab world is crime rates are extremely low. They're among the lowest in the world, similar to Japan and China, partly because the social culture is strong, partly because of very few weapons. In fact, what, what, the, uh, the funny thing happened about a year ago. I was, on my, I was in Tunisia and Jordan, you know, which are both very low. And I was my, I'd come back and three different people said, don't you worry going to places like that? And I think, no, ne- never think about Tunisia. It's really safe. It's right. safer than Florida. I was going to say, like, Staten Island Ferry, Tunisia. Like, where, where do you have to be more guarded? Yeah, I actually, I arrived back from Yemen the day of the Newtown massacre. And oh, someone wow. said, oh, is you scared? I said, are you kidding? I just came back to a country where someone killed a bunch of kindergartners yeah, with a yeah. machine gun. I've never heard that happening in the Arab world. Yeah. So most Arab countries, if they're not been invaded by the United States, are actually very, very safe. And, I, and, I, and then I went to Tennessee because my mother-in-law had passed away. And no one asked me, are you afraid going to Tennessee? Right. Which is a very high-risk place. So many guns, whatever. Yeah, if you so just well look I, at the sheer uh, numbers, I mean, if you look yeah, at the... Well, no, it's a, but this is what... The statistics is what... That's what it is. It's well, not also, perception. It's reality. Yeah. I looked at the stats. Tunisia, Jordan, and Morocco are safer than most American states. Well, but it also period. depends on also your culture. For example, you as a married gay man. Right. Um, I mean, I have a son who's who's trans, who's right. just joined the Peace Corps, like I said. And people are very... like People are posting on Facebook, be safe, be safe. Well, you know, he's probably a lot safer in a foreign country where they don't, like, being trans isn't even on their radar, right. then he is going to Alabama. I mean, f- uh, forgive, and then again, that's another Mar- American misperception. There's plenty right, of right, but let's people pull in it, let's Alabama, pull back, but let's you know pull what I'm saying. Let's pull it back to the people, though, because okay. this is, like, so in your experience, in your journeys, what, like, what is the, the um, how, like, the characteristics of, of generosity in that part of the world? Versus the characteristics of generosity in our part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't That's know a good that way of putting well, it. Well, the, uh, the Arab world is globally famous. There are things that I'm not crazy about the Arab world. There are some things that, I, that the disorganization, the fact that people can't stop at stop signs in Cairo. But Qadam in Arabic, Qadam means generosity. And the Arabs are famous for this. I mean, you, you know, the, the fighting over who's going to pay for the tea or whatever. Mm. And it's one of the things that's really very moving. Is that I mean, I was just, just in, I was just in Istanbul last week. 
And I was passing one of these guys, I don't know if you saw it on Facebook, who, who, was, who dressed you up in Ottoman costumes, and I never oh, yeah. would have done that. But it, I heard him speaking, he was a Syrian. I heard him speaking Syrian Arabic. So I went up to him, we were talking. He's from Aleppo, and I, I got so moved because I used mm. to live in Damascus, and, and I'm very distraught about what's happened in of Syria. Course. And he got me crying, actually, about it because it, it's just so devastating. And uh, so I, I did the pose with him, and it was a great picture, and he's a sweet young man. He had to you know, climb over mountains to get to Turkey with his wife. His family's still in Aleppo. And at the end of it, I'm going to pay my 15 Turkish dinar for this, which is like $3. And he, we had a battle mm -hmm. because he had made a connection. And that happens all the time in the Arab world. Someone sees he didn't, your he eyes. He didn't want to accept your money. He would not take my money. And I had to like leave. Right. <laughs> but, so, but so what, what's the... Uh, so typical. Is there a way to define what the underpinning of that spirit is, that cultural concept? I, you know, I'm, I think about that a lot. I think part of it is, you know, the, the Middle East is very much defined between places where there was water and there was no water. Okay. You know, the Nile Valley and the Euphrates and then the, the Bedouin and other tribes in between. I, I have the feeling that if you were a Bedouin, and you showed up at someone's doorstep across the mm. hill, you had to expect they would give you water. Right. Otherwise, you'd die. You right. know, it wasn't like the forests of Europe. And I, and I think that maybe part of that is this feeling that you, the guest is the most important thing. People treat guests with enormous... Like when I was living in Damascus, people would ask me... I was there when the American embassy in Tehran was taken over, and, and Syria was as now allied with the Iranians mm -hmm. uh, so people said oh my god how's it feel being there because I was the, we were very few Americans it was me and two women we were the first Fulbright scholars in Damascus since the beginning of time you wow. know, so, uh, so the first Americans studying there and there were demonstrations against the evil American empire but personally people were amazing you know because they, they also saw the government as something that was like they didn't really think much of their government, so they figured right. nothing well, to do with that, us. But that also goes to, like, <laughs> yeah. this is an, an, another universal concept, which is uh, you look at governments, and you look at groupthink, you look at business, and there's a certain culture there, but individuals have to get through their earthly existence. Absolutely. And that's, because and that, I, I think that that's actually what, I, what I'm hearing is you're talking about people who have a sense of camaraderie of being in the same place at the same time and that spirit just blossoms right and that you know conflicts with the concept of imperialist financial gain or politics or you know the stuff that we know from okay, what well we like read here's, in here. here's or a tribalism myth. Yeah. here's a myth that every Saudi Arabian <clears throat> is a billionaire well, and in fact, not. I mean, uh, have you ever seen the film Wejda, by the way? No. Uh, there, that's the other thing. I mean, you're talking about the media. Americans, when they see the Arab world, tend to see homeland and all yeah. this nonsense. And, I, and I, when I teach the Middle East to high school students, I say the first thing you should do is never watch anything made by the Americans about the Middle East, because I've never seen anything made by the Americans that I would recommend. Either things made by people from the Middle East or the Europeans, who have a more, for whatever reason, more sophisticated right. view. And there was this wonderful film, Wejda, that came to Sag Harbor, about a 10-year-old Saudi girl who wanted to ride a bicycle. It is such an amazing film, and I could do an exegesis over Saudi society. You are, lived and also, you know, P.S., you are known as the bike guy. Exactly. In Sag oh, Harbor, so it, it paid you on every... It was oh, my God, so right. it was Middle East <laughs> and bicycles. And girl had feminism. Oh, yes. my God. <laughs> <laughs> so they made this movie. You were their demographic. And, and actually, I, I met the director because they, they... It was actually an interesting story because you're from Hollywood. You'll know. They, they wanted to I'm propose... I'm from New York. Thank you. No, no, Hollywood. No, but <laughs> yeah, you, had, no, you had a Hollywood period. You bust his chops. Totally bust his chops. They wanted to propose it as the Saudi offering for the best foreign language film. Yeah. To do that, uh, uh, according to the Oscars, 
a film must be shown at least for one month in the country of origin. Well, hello, Saudi Arabia has no public theaters. I don't right. know if you know that, but there are no, no public theaters. I don't know anything about Saudi well, Arabia. Well, that's, that's a whole million right. year story. Right. Anyway, they have no ball. public theaters. So they have lots of private theaters, some of them fabulous, but no public theaters. So the only way they could do this, the Americans very kindly offered to show it at the American embassy. So I got to meet the director. She was wonderful. Oh, how cool. And she, it was actually kind of her story. Anyway, you've got to see this film. And, it, and it's this film that shows working class Saudis in their lives in a very real way. I remember my brother was shocked that the woman didn't eat uh, dinner with the men. I said, yeah, hello, that's like classic conservative Saudi society. Right. But also very sympathetically. And it's the kind of movies, there's so many great movies. Like, see, if you saw this, you'd, your heart would go out. Mm -hmm. You see they're different, but you see the commonality. That, that, that's what my thing is. As you say, individually, you talk to someone, you, you get through that, that, that fog of difference, and you see, God, we have so much in common. And what's different is interesting. Right. Not threatening. Right. But mm -hmm. it's also, but it can be the same thing here. I mean, I, I can say to someone, well, you know, I'm Jewish and they can think, uh, oh, so you are Hasid and you have to, you know, you live here and you can't eat that and whatever. But that's not the way it is where I say I'm Buddhist and people go, oh, so you can't eat meat and you wear long orange robes. No, I don't. You know, and, and it's the same thing probably with, with Middle East where there's different levels Absolutely. of where people and are and able Tunisians to eat. And Tunisians are right. different so from Saudis as Norwegians so, are. So where this conversation right. is leading me, though, which is really interesting is, is how it, it, are we like forever uh, stuck in this this paradigm, or or how does the paradigm change? Well, I mean, look look back at how the hostility towards Germans after World War II or Japanese. You know, I think there's a at periods of conflict, people tend to demonize. It's easy, you right. know, to make them the bad guys because otherwise you can't justify your bombs. I mean, I'll tell you, after 9/11, I, I I felt very. I was devastated by 9-11 on so many levels. I was actually stuck in Beijing when it happened. And my best friend from business school was in the North Tower. Mm. He ha happened to be a Lebanese-American, gorgeous, wonderful guy. So it would really profoundly affected me. I remember afterwards thinking and saying to people, maybe this will get Americans to have a conversation about what we're doing in the Middle East. Because right. even though it was not an attack of the Muslims of the world, it was an attack of a crew group of criminals, and we should have seen it that way, rather than seeing it as a tribal warfare, exactly. which we did, and, and have... But that goes back to the war machine that, that we have. And that's also true. So we always need uh, we need an we need a common enemy. Uh, well, that's uh, I, I think the war the machine. I don't want to go to politics. That's a whole right. part of it. No, but, but, but I think but, that, but, that but but we're we're it's, I don't think this is a political conversation. I think this is a cultural conversation. A sociological. But, but, uh, let me, uh, yeah. The thought is after nine eleven, I I would say to people maybe this will begin a debate about or discussion a dialogue on our views of the Arab world and what we have done to create this hostility, right. which I think was justified. Not not the World Trade Center but the hostility. Instead, it, the opposite happened. And I could see that it, at that time when people are feeling vulnerable and horrified watching those towers fall, you want to lash out. And that's, right. Right. that's well, what but again, But again, and I know, I know we're saying we don't want to talk yeah. politics. Yeah. I could tell you, to me, the biggest failure of that administration was the entire country was united and wanted to do something positive, and instead we went right to war. Yeah. With you the know, wrong country <coughs> in the wrong thing. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so, Alec, I was in Beijing when it happened. Uh, and people would come up the street crying. I was in Beijing when we invaded Iraq. You mm. could not imagine the difference. It yeah. was the Chinese, because the Chinese are not into invading. You know, they're right. really into like, you stay on your border. You, you, yeah, they you have stay a in your great place wall to make sure that Exactly. That <laughs> they, they feel very <laughs> Don't say wall. About that. Yeah. And that, that, that it was a turnaround. The sympathy was gone yeah, yeah. to hostility in a very short time. Anyway, so I feel strongly that if people can, can get over that and say, who is on the other side of that wall? Right. You know, but again, like so, we live in this world where we're all connected with social media, and we all, you know, there. It seems like there are more screens that can actually have content. How do we change this conversation? I, I'm. I, I, you don't have to have a, a definitive answer, but you know, 
You, well, I mean, the I Obama, think, for example, Obama, that's what I was going to say, hosting the Obama scholars. Scholars, right? Things like that. So, and, and for people that don't know, including the person sitting right next to you with my voice, um, <laughs> what, what, what is the uh, mission statement of the Obama scholars? I, I, I don't know the mission statement. I know what, what they're trying to do is get young people from around the world who were local leaders, and you, you met they're really an impressive They're amazing, group, yeah. You know, to come, uh, they're studying at Columbia, this group. Something like that. I mean, I, I, you, you mentioned the IFTAR, which I'm very, very proud of. Right. Uh, I just feel that people can build bridges and learn about each other. It, it, it gets rid of some of the fear. What happened is, the, the IFTAR was actually an interesting story. There's a, there was an Egyptian guy, uh, Muhammad, um, the squash player at the... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, delightful guy. Yeah. Okay, I, so clearly this, this has to do with sports. I might as well just step out of the room. No, so. no, 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 no. I'm, no, not, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I know who you're talking about. He's though. a sweet... I thought it was Ishmael. It, that might have been his brother. There were a okay. couple of... Uh, they were, and he's a tremendous squash player. I, I know because my daughter did gymnastics there. I'm just sitting on my laptop waiting for her or working out or whatever. And I heard him listening to Um Kalthum, the right. Egyptian singer. I said, oh, are you Arab? So we got yeah. chat, chatting away Egyptian. And then... He'd be very nice. We became friendly. And then one Ramadan came. It was, I knew it was Ramadan, obviously. And I said, so what are you doing for iftar? Iftar is the breaking of the fast right, in right. the evening. It's the big sunset. celebration. Yeah. It, every, it happens every night. And it's really wonderful. And you'd always do it communally. And it's a great experience. It's like a little party for, for a month. And he said, well, I Skype with my mom in Alexandria. I said, that's it? That's wow. so depressing. It is depressing, You'd really, yeah. It's a communal thing. It's such a communal activity. And, and I actually fasted the two years I was in Tunisia. You fasted feel. for two years? No, no, no. no, no kidding, kidding. I'm kidding. During, during <laughs> the sunlight <laughs> hours. Yeah, I didn't eat that during, sun, I during sunlight hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's up with this idea, though, of fasting as being like something that's supposed to show well, your devotion to, to I don't, the I think God it of your clar choosing? It clarifies every, the mind. Every religion, every religion has it. But why is it? Because it clarifies the mind and it and it clarifies the, the body. It's abnegation saying that I don't need that. I can live without that, which is a very powerful thing okay. in Buddhism and Judaism. Yeah, and yeah no, I know. It's just, it's, <coughs> it's very much part of the, the it's certainly, it, well, so much of it started with Judaism, of course. You right. know, a lot of the, I think Islam and Christianity are daughters of, of Judaism. Anyway, so he, he, I said, well, let me have something at our house. I'll invite a couple. And it got bigger and bigger. I, I ran into the minister at the, our minister at the uh, Unitarian congregation. She said, oh, we'll host it. Then I ran into the Episcopalian. She oh, said, that oh, Kimberly, Johnson? Kimberly, Kimberly yes, Johnson. Right, right, right. And That's then I ran into the Rabbi Dan uh, at, uh, we were at, at uh, the coffee shop and he said oh we'll bring the and it it was right, so. over so it 100 people huge. it was incredible so it's so now we've had the third year all but every muslim we can find so it's like usually 40 or 50 muslims mm -hmm. pakistanis and moroccans they bring food which is amazing and then we all wait until sunset until oh, and oh, then I together. Do this. oh it's amazing and, and then the people who are non-muslim come out learning something about islam seeing people who are Muslims and they don't they're not on homeland they're real humans with kids and right. food well, and well but again like like <laughs> and I Islam and even Judaism and Christianity all seem it, it's somewhere in their core maybe it, it, they're reactionary to imperialism and they're reactionary to ruling strife. they're like there's this other thing that's going on which is we're not that right, so we're going to do things go. this way <laughs> And then it becomes a dogma at some point, but that doesn't mean that everybody's not the same. I mean, it doesn't. That well, there's so many similarities. I mean, look, I, I'm personally I was raised Unitarian. I'm not. I'm not. I'm neither. I actually say I'm not Christian. I'm not Jewish. I'm not Muslim. I don't have a dog in this fight. Right. And, and what I feel about it is is actually that I think Islam is unfairly judged. I, I, again, I'm not. I don't think mm. Islam is better or worse than Christianity. But when Christ, when Christians Christians say to me, Islam is a violent religion, I say, yeah. 
whoa, have you looked at the last 2,000 years of Christian history? You right. Know, uh, what are you talking about? The Crusades. And, 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 the, or, uh, and as I mentioned during the break. The Inquisition. I, yeah. I mean, I mean <laughs> another thing people say all the time is Jews and Muslims have been fighting since the beginning of time. That's nonsense. To the yeah. contrary. Jews actually did way better among Muslims than among Christians. Uh, yeah, the, well, and again, you, you had mentioned before the, 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 the genesis of the Israeli state as being a, a pivot. Absolutely. And, and um, what I had always thought Right. Again, this is just my own belief. You know, about 10 years ago, I read where they were doing like all the genealogy uh, with, with the Irish and the English. I actually saw that they were all like the same people, right. which like would bum out both sides of that conversation. Exactly. And I think the same thing with like the Jews and the Arabs, that like that on some level, if you actually really looked, they're the same people. Well, especially the Mizrahi Jews, yeah. you know, who are from right. the region. Yeah, but that's, you know, but I, and, and, they just and, didn't convert. <laughs> right, but that's, but I'm saying it. So, <laughs> right. so that belief like system, yeah. belief systems then yeah. separate us. And again, perceptions then happen, and boogeymen are created. And but what we're really, what we're talking about right now right. for me is, and and what's am amazing about the life you've lived to me, is that you've gone out in the world and you've seen people, and then you've seen the institutions, and you're thinking, how can these institutions necessarily, you know, help these people, or somehow make it better right. than it was? Right. But the way it was it was also created by people with flawed thought. Absolutely, yeah. But it's also, uh, as you said, there's the war machine, there's also the media machine. And yeah, the I mean, we're, we're talking about the Middle East, and we, don't, we haven't mentioned, like, Winston Churchill and the whole, like, creating of the borders. And, oh, my God. And yeah. how, I right. mean, that's, think about that. You know, when, we, when, I, when I teach, actually, I teach at Pearson, and I'm trying to teach other schools a kind of three-day course on the modern Middle East, and I start with the end of the Ottoman Empire, because mm -hmm. Psycho and all of that was very critical, and, and most Americans don't know the history. Uh, in fact, high school students, nobody knows the history. When, when you talk about Iran, for example, and people right. don't know that the Americans got rid of Mossadegh, who was... And th these are really important facts to know. because then you, then you say, why is Iran hostile to the United States? Well, they have very good reason if you know the history. Well, but Iran you know? kind of became like a, a handmaid's tale in the sense that, I mean, I, I, had, I went to the United Nations school, so I had right. friends who were Ara Iranian. Right. And... Um, and you know, I, I would see pictures of their, their mothers or their grandmothers wearing, you know, sh brushed Chanel outfits right. in Iran, and then suddenly they're, they're and, but wearing, the, you know. Bridget, you know, that's actually throughout the Arab world, and one of the things that I have seen in my lifetime, like when we went, when we lived in Cairo back in the 80s, uh, you saw very few women with hijab, yeah. right. uh, it's likewise in Turkey. And in those days, people, I think, I actually think if Israel hadn't happened, and I'm, I'm not saying whether that was good or bad, but it was a fact that really had enormous impact on what happened in the Arab world, and if there hadn't been oil, because that's gigantic. But those, those, are two, those are two big ifs. I mean, that's, no, but, that's, no, but, that's no, but, but I think I think that the Arab world would have followed a trajectory much more similar to Southeast Asia or Latin America. It was moving in that direction. Okay. It was highly secular. People were moving economic growth. It was a gradual thing, like Tunisia, you know, one of those right. places. But because of those enormous shocks and the wars and the Iraqi invasion, it went in a very different direction. Right. And one of those directions was when the Americans said, "We don't like Muslims," people said, "Well." God damn it! I am Muslim. You know, it was there was a reaction, and I actually right. I've done a, a survey of of about now fifty women from Indonesia to Morocco. Why do you wear hijab? Yeah, I asked them. You know, because right. women who wouldn't their mothers don't wear hijab right. in Pakistan, and they say one of the most common reasons is I am proud to be Muslim. Right. And and I'm. It's like the Afros in the '60s. You don't right. like black people. Well, God damn it! You're going to see from a hundred miles that I'm Angel Davis. You right. know, it's the right. same right. kind of thing. So there's been a rise of Muslim identity which people here don't understand, is a reaction to, you know, the hostility. So then it becomes this vicious right. cycle. So, you yeah. don't know where the original <laughs> thing is. I, I just want to go back to this because this is a little qualifier. Like, uh, you know, 
we're not talking. Yeah, but we're not talking about the, the the moral rights of Israel. We're just talking about no, the no, no, fact no, that no, it no. exists. Yeah. Right, right, right. I, I'm Absolutely. not going to go and and yeah. that that changed the conversation. Absolutely. Well, listen, we're going to take uh, another break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk a little bit about the recent current events with Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Khashoggi. Uh, just touch on it very lightly since we have an expert on Arab culture in the room. Uh, we're here with Ken Dorf. It's Bridget Leroy and Alex Sokolov here on Sundays on the East End. Come back. We're back on a Sundays on the East End here with Bridget Leroy and Alex Socklow with our special guest Ken Dorf, and we're having an interesting conversation during the break about uh, Khashoggi and and the recent kind of upheaval and what's going on over there. And Alec, you have a, a take on it that you wanted to share before we get to Ken. Well, I'm, I'm, I have many takes, and they come and go. But like for me. One of the things that I'm left with is, you know, where the, the conversation is about, you know, how this man was murdered and, and now the cover-up. I'm more interested in his words and his, his life. Me too. I mean, and, and actually, Ken, you said that you actually had a chance to meet him at some Jamal point. I met Jamal many years ago. I was in the 80s. I was living in Riyadh. He was in Jeddah. worked for Arab News at the mm. time. And one of my, actually a good friend that I'm seeing in Cairo, an American who lives in Egypt, also worked uh, with Arab News, so I met him briefly. I just was impressed by him. He seemed like a, he's kind of jovial, kind of a Joe Shaw type. Right. You know, <laughs> nice guy. Right. Uh, and very smart. So I followed him on and off through his life, but I'm not an expert on him. I, I, I just think the bigger thing is that journalism is so important. What you're doing, communication, transparency, sharing information. Right. And we're, we're living in a current moment in America where there's a, you know, a playbook color by numbers, uh, uh, you know, desire to discredit journalism by the people who are in the administration. Uh, absolutely, which is very real. I don't know if you saw the Guardian reporter who was attacked by that mm -hmm. congressman, and right. now, yeah. and then, and then the, uh, the president yeah. goes on to say, well, yeah. isn't he a great guy? Uh, That's I, uh, my guy. This is, I don't think that the Saudis would have dared to have done this if, with a different president. And, and I don't think Americans understand how much, even That's though... That's profound. That's a profound concept. I hadn't thought about it in those terms. Oh, but, no, never. But there's, I mean, there's, there's tendril connectivity to absolutely. that Absolutely. There's a sense of the of the, the, the mafia in, in the Philippines and in Hungary and everywhere else that's sort of been let loose. Do you know what I mean? And that's the scary thing to me, mm. is if the Americans are powerful, and if we use our power to, to just make bombs and, and, and not d defend the, the rights of journalists, then who are we? Right. Well, right, well again, yeah. that goes to, you know, in the 1920s when America's influence really uh, increased dramatically, it was Hollywood. It was, again, the mythology that America was putting forth. That was the greatest, uh, maybe where the needle shifted in, in a lot of areas. But, you know, all roads lead to in two weeks. There's an important election here and everybody should vote one way or the other. Absolutely. Be heard. Please. Please, 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 please get out and vote. Important. Yeah. yeah, but but I want I want to go back to this again because this is the value of one life, right? The mm -hmm. value of this this man was murdered. He's butchered. Uh, he was butchered in a consulate uh, by assassins brought by a uh, uh, a country that that we have a lot of interest, uh, financial interest in. Right. And um, so that is that the, and th so, the so value yeah, of one life compared what to is the, the value of one life uh, compared the, to like the greater oversight. yeah mega financial conversations governments and companies have because that's that's Overview getting you and not oversight yeah I but that, yeah, that's yeah, getting yeah. lost i think a little bit in the debate 
now it's 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 just like what happened who's lying blah 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 but you see but I, and i'm not meaning to inter interrupt ken but a lot of this has to come down with the media and i'm in the media but the media portrayal of what is important and what isn't um of course it's extremely important and it's horrifying but it's it creates again that kind of terror and the sky is falling when when as as ken said before we started like there's the value of the one life but then there's these horrible things going on in yemen you're not hearing about that every day instead right. you're hearing about this one case of this one so who who are we trying to vilify right now and as and as you said who is responsible well uh, it's also caused to question i mean i think again americans don't think a lot about who our allies are you know in the middle east and elsewhere and, and why that is. And I, I've actually spent a lot of time in Saudi Arabia, and I personally like the Saudis as people. They're very generous, very generous. Uh, you know, I think of the Saudis as sort of like the Beverly Hillbillies of the Middle East. And they, they, they got money, and they were mm -hmm. very simple people, and, you know, and, and in some ways it could be very destructive. But they're also hyper-conservative. And one of, the, one of the things that also Americans don't understand is our oil uh, addiction, uh, which it is, mm -hmm. it's, which has been so destructive on so many levels, created Saudi Arabia which also then affected the entire Arab world. It's something when I teach, of course, in the Middle East, other than Israel, the other big thing was oil. Saudi Arabia, you know what the population of Riyadh was 100 years ago? What? It was small in Sag Harbor. Wow. It was nothing. It was a tiny oasis. No, and like what is it now? Like millions? About 10 million. Yeah. And, yeah. and Saudi Arabia has but, the but biggest... So, so again, so then in a way, the conversation is turning to consumption and fear. No, no, but not just that. It, but the, the cultural impact. This right. is very significant. Uh, in the 1920s, Egypt and Baghdad and, and, and Aleppo were the capitals of an emerging intellectual, you know, secular, there was the, 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 the Arab socialism. Right. And that was the future of the Arab world to me. Then all of a sudden you had the shock of Israel and then you had the Saudis, nice people, but what did they know? They, they were Bedouins or people from very small. The only thing that Saudi had was Mecca. So the only thing they understood was, oh, if we're going to help the world, we're going to be good Muslims. So they had all this money. So then they start to spend money on mosques in Indonesia and mosques in, in Morocco. And, and they'll say to the Moroccans, oh, that's not how you make a mosque. This is how you make a mosque. Right. And then people from Egypt and Pakistan go to Saudi Arabia. They see it works because it's rich, right. where Pakistan and Egypt don't work. And they right. say, ah, clearly Islam is the way. Clearly the Saudi, and the Saudis were the most, and, and remember, Saudis are only a few million people. Right. The Muslim world is 1.6 billion. Right. So they're a teeny, teeny proportion. But their influence in the last 40 years of spreading a Has very been monumental. conservative. Right. Monumental. And, and why and again, did that happen? Because they got the money from us. But right. I was going to say, but that <laughs> goes back to this whole thing about like the Kardashians, like uh, which right. I've literally never seen a Kardashian show. But, but for younger women, their, their they... Their futures are behind them. Ugh. God, Alec. Seriously, but the, the whole point, okay, I know about that, right? But the point is, is that we look at, you know, th that again, that becomes what people want to be. Right. So that's kind of what was happening in the Middle East. People wanted to be like the Saudis because here they were and they exactly. had all this money. But, but, they were but living again, the highlight. And, and historically speaking, uh, the, the, the silk trade routes and the herb trade routes also spread Islam at a certain point. So the yeah. need for consumption, the desire <coughs> for consumption from the West has then brought a different conversation to the West well, with all of that them, the West then well. looks at as somehow not part of, uh, we're not taking full responsibility well, the Silk Road, the for spice our own market, cultural. The, and, right. and the Islam that spread, I mean, going back to what you just said, mm. in Malaysia and Morocco was an extremely diverse Islam. This is mm. something also people here don't understand. I mean, for example, in Morocco, they have marabou, which are kind of saints, which is totally anathema in, in Salafi Islam. So, so Islam... Any religion that it's going to expand has to absorb the traditions of the local religion. Do you know something interesting I've read that was fascinating is that 90% of the shrines to Mary in the Mediterranean basin were shrines.
shrines to Venus. Yeah, we already we we, wow. we covered that, this a couple of weeks what, ago with Shane yeah. Weeks, where we like where Saint Peter's were, was literally like put on exactly. top of the biggest so they pagan say, Oh, temple. new saint. Her name is Mary. I get it. Yeah. And, and the same right. thing that most of the Latin American saints, like Guadalupe and all that, were actually Aztec or Incan saints yeah. that became. Catholic. So it's really like that season six of the Beverly Hills exactly. where they bring somebody else in and they're like, "That's Jeb." <laughs> exactly. Oh, so they, they jump <laughs> the shark. Then, yeah, so <laughs> Islam was also a converting religion and a popular religion, so it had to absorb a lot of local traditions. So Islam is very diverse. Islam in Indonesia is really different than Islam. Well, listen, we, we, we yeah. only have a, about five minutes or so left. So, you know, what, what is our kind of, what do we want to end on? What positive note about Arab culture? Maybe our time remaining right now uh, is, is to really, again, go back to the people. Yeah. It's the people. It, it's always the individual. It's the yeah, people. Absolutely. What I would suggest to your listeners, go visit. Okay. I've had this experience several times where, you know, I remember the kids were in like third or fourth grade and the kindergarten teacher came up to me and said, oh my God, my daughter's going to Jordan. And she imagined she'd get off the plane and Al-Qaeda would kidnap her and you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, wow, Jordan, that's fantastic. The first thing you should do is go visit her, which she did. A few weeks later, they went to Jordan, they went around Syria, they went to uh, Istanbul. They came back converts. Right. Everyone who goes to the Arab world comes back a convert. Well, Joe Shaw just did this big Egypt, trip to Egypt. You know, do you know, that's so funny because Joe Shaw, someone put on his thing, oh, I hear they, they, they snatch body organs in Cairo. You know, right. and he's already thinking, oh, my God. It's all. And I said, Joe, Egypt is safer than Texas significantly. <laughs> right. So if you would consider going to Texas for vacation. Yeah, but if they had, like, don't mess with Egypt on the bumper. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be good if everyone were carrying a gun, don't which they're not. Don't mess with Egypt. Yeah. I love you it. Know? And I'm actually going to Cairo on Thursday. I'm really looking forward That's to it. That's awesome. Oh, you know? that is great. So awesome. go, go. Go to go, Egypt. Go right. to Egypt. Go to Morocco. Oh, my God. Morocco. You could live there. It's so fabulous. Well, yeah. I, and then I go right back to Casablanca. You know, everyone goes to Rick's. Rick's place. Do you know there Rick's was Cafe. A, I actually have a friend of mine opened up uh, Rick's Cafe in Casablanca. Because the, and it became very popular. And was there gambling there? No, no, but it was a, it was. Because I was, was shocked. There's gambling at yeah. Rick's. <laughs> but, but but again, so so really, the conversation is going to this place. Is we are all closer together than we are apart Absolutely. in 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 the human experience. And I love the the message. Go. I love the message of of take the initiative, get over the the perceptions that uh, get fed to all of us, and, and make your own decision. Right. You know, um, and learn and learn, mm -hmm. which is really amazing. And what like what misperceptions? Um, give me one example of when you went over there. What if you and of course you were schooled and learned about a lot of this stuff. But what was a misperception that just got blown out of the water for you? Well, there are many. What you were talking about, I, I mentioned before that I, I actually taught at the Jewish school in Tunisia. I celebrated Passover in Morocco. My best friend in Egypt is a Christian married to a Jew. And, and that was something that was struck by how, again, before the creation of Israel, which changed things, obviously. Because like, you know how, like, after World War II, all of a sudden the Japanese were suspect. So the Jews right. became suspect. Even the Jews had lived there 2,000 years had become suspect because of what happened. Even so, like, for example, in Tunisia, after 67, there was a riot and the synagogue was burned down in Tunis, which was very shocking because it's a big Jewish community. Bourguiba got on national television and said, I'm ashamed. These are Tunisians, these are they're Jewish Tunisians, and he put a tax on, on Tunis to rebuild or repaint the synagogue. That's amazing. Which is amazing. You know, yeah. that's a, and so uh, that was a big surprise to you, was that they kind of stuck yes. together and protected each other? Yeah, and, and, and also learning the history that, you know, when, guess what, from Ferdinand and Isabella came through Spain, where did the Jews go? They went with the Muslims. They right. went to Biscay. Well, they went to Morocco. They to went 
and there, and there, is, and there, is, there is a theory that Columbus was actually Jewish, um, and because of the way he signed his letters, he right. used uh, certain signals, and so even the idea of going to the New World was part of some diaspora. And he might have gone underground, because a lot of mm -hmm. Jews did. Well, a lot yeah. of or Jews also went they... to the islands off of Portugal, like Vizcaya, exactly. and then they went down through, um, you know, yeah, through Morocco and all Yeah, there's a huge Jewish community in, in North Africa, especially yeah. in Egypt, in Istanbul, and, and that I didn't understand, and when people say that, everything changed with Israel, and that's a much bigger conversation of what happened and why, but that was a big dividing line. And, mm -hmm. and, and I'm not saying, again, pro or con, but acknowledge it. Acknowledge how that changed the dialogue. Um, yeah. But that's well, this, another this is a hot topic because, yeah. uh, you know, just hearing it, I, I think, wow, like there's so many ways to perceive that statement. Right. Ultimately, we're going back to you've spent your whole life. And remember, I grew up with people who had the, the who numbers had on their arm when I was a kid. Yeah, so no, but for you me, spe you've spent Hitler your whole life. Hitler was the devil. Right. So, but then I've worked with the Palestinians. So I have lived. Right. I, no, no. But, but and that, yeah. that's what I was just say. You've spent your whole life uh, out in the world, going to places that most Americans can't fathom of, and then trying to do work, connecting people, and using the instruments of finance to somehow better a situation. Right. Right. So you're not speaking as from opinion. Ex your opinion. You're, you're speaking, speaking from, from experience. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sort of like Rodney King. Why can't we just all get along? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's really my belief. And that's a great way to end the show, I think, because uh, why can't we all just get along? Sunday afternoon, you know, hug your neighbor and and step out of your comfort zone just a little bit and perhaps see the world a little differently. Well, thanks so much for being on Thank our show, so Ken. Much. I it's hope you come pleasure. back. Really, really, really enjoyed talking with you. And uh, once again, this is Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And we'll be back again next week. Tune in to 88.3 WPPV-FM or listen online at 883wppb.org and you can always make a donation to keep shows like this on the air and thanks again for listening All right. see you next week be well stay well funding for Sundays on the East End is provided in part by CP Complete Construction and Renovation with additional support from the Independent and from Just Beyond Infinity Googleplex Look around, yeah, yeah I pay my, I pay my, I pay my money to the wealthy